0: Welcome to our seventh lesson in the book of Ephesians. In our last lesson, Paul spoke about his call to preach the good news of Christ to the Gentiles. It was by grace that God had called him to this wonderful purpose. And even though that call ended up with Paul being in prison for the sake of the Gentiles, Paul knew that this was all part of God's plan for him and that his joy would really be made complete by fulfilling the calling that was placed upon his life. He knew that in Jesus Christ our Lord, both Jew and Gentile can have bold access into the very presence of the Father. We can approach that throne of grace with boldness to find help in our time of need because Christ, by his perfect sacrifice on the cross, opened the way into God's throne room for us. Instead of praying that they would learn to love God, God more as we might expect, Paul prayed that they would be able to comprehend God's incredible love for them more. And he encouraged them that God is able to do so much more than anyone could ever ask or think to the glory of his name. And you know, the The same is true for us as well, because if we grasp the expansive love of Christ for us, it really will transform the way that we live. Now, as we begin chapter 4, we see Paul again refer to the fact that he does not see himself as a prisoner of Rome. Rather, to him, it is the Lord who holds his destiny. God had a purpose for Paul, even being in the place that he was. So Paul says to the Ephesians in verse 1 of 4, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You see, as Christians, each of us have been called by God to represent him here on earth. And Paul, he wanted his friends to live worthy of the calling that they had received and to be good ambassadors for Christ, irrespective of what came their way. And really, that appeal was made all the more significant because, if you remember, Paul was experiencing so much hardship of his own at that time. And this is the same call upon us as Christ followers even today. The fact that other Christians around the world give up their freedom and yes, even their lives for the gospel has to challenge each one of us as it did the Ephesians back in that, that day. The question is, is, are we living in a way that is worthy of the calling that we have received? Paul sought to represent Christ well, even when he was chained to a Roman 24-7. And irrespective of his circumstances, he never failed to share the gospel every chance that he got. And the same should be true for you and I. Now, in verse 2, Paul encouraged them, and of course us, to how one might live worthy of Christ's calling. The way this is done is to be lowly, gentle, and long-suffering, ruled by love. Now, lowliness here can also be translated as humility. And you'll remember that biblical humility is not a matter of thinking less of yourself, but it's really a matter of not thinking of yourself at all. Gentleness is uh, praeutes in the Greek, meaning of mild disposition, gentle of spirit. Long-suffering means to be upright and firm and to Endure despite the challenges that come. And that word long suffering carries with it the idea of being understanding and forgiving to others as well. So, really, to live worthy of the calling then is to live with a gentle spirit, with no thought for ourselves, firm and steadfast for Christ, showing understanding and forgiveness to others. And he asked that they would especially hold one another up in love. Love. In fact, in verse 3, he pleaded with them to try to keep the unity of the Spirit. And you see in the text, he uses the word endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit. Why don't you circle that word endeavouring in the text? The Greek for that is spoudazo, and it can also be translated being diligent. So in other words, we have to exert ourselves toward being united. Unity isn't something that um, just happens. No, it is something that we need to be intentional about. It was something that required exertion. It, It required it then and it requires it now. He wanted them to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I just want to look at that phrase a little bit more, the bond of peace, because when you look at it in Greek, it really is quite wonderful. The picture for that word bond contains within it a picture of the ligaments of a human body, the ligaments that hold all the different limbs in place together. So like ligaments, peace holds Christ's body together. And it's really only once we understand Christ's deep love for us individually that we're able to work with others with no thought for ourselves, where we're able to have these bonds of peace. Unity is important to God, and Paul goes on to remind us that we're to intentionally focus on peace because, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, in one hope of your calling— One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Interestingly, here Paul refers to these seven things. And the number seven in scripture is often used to show perfection or completeness. So this is not by accident. And we need to look at these things individually. You see, there's only one body of Christ. So although we may be divided up into different cells or even denominational groups, there is really one body. There's this invisible church that's made up of those who genuinely believe in Jesus and have him as Lord of their lives. Each member of that body of Christ is indwelt by his Holy Spirit. And as Christians, we have one hope. Jesus is our hope. And we all look forward to finally and completely being restored to the Father in heaven because of him. In verse 5, Paul also emphasizes that as Christians, we all have the same ruler, for there is only one Lord. In other words, Christ followers all have the same owner or master. Jesus is the one who has uncontested power over us. And so then really, as fellow subjects obeying the same master, we are to be united there's also one faith and there's one belief regarding man's relationship to God. One idea of trust in Jesus, who is after all the only one given to us by whom we must be saved. And also there's one baptism, according to Paul, and he's not referring to water baptism here, just in case you think he is. Remember, water baptism is really the outward sign of an inward reality. The baptism that Paul is speaking of here is when we immerse ourselves in Jesus Christ and become part of his church, his body, by making him Lord of our lives. And so this A baptism is really a baptism into Christ that happens upon believing in Christ as our Saviour and Lord. Finally, there is one true God who is Father of all who belong to Jesus Christ. He alone is over us, or as the text puts it, above all of us. He alone is the one who works through us and he's in us. Do you see how all of this beautifully underscores the Trinity? Because there's one Spirit, there's one Lord and there's one Father. So in the body of Christ, there should be an astonishing unity because according to verse 7, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We are all recipients of God's grace that has been lavished upon us in the death of Christ on the cross. And as a result, we have been made part of his body. And yet, that being said, we're not all the same. Though we are united, we're also diverse because God has given different gifts to each of His people. Think of it though as a body. Think of it this way. A man is walking alongside a lake when he hears with his ears a voice crying out. So he turns and with his eyes he sees another person flailing about in the water. Realizing that the person is about to drown, he runs with his legs To the shore's edge, he reaches with his arms, grabs onto the person with his hands, pulls with his back, and so the victim is saved. Now, in that example of the rescue, which part of the man's body was more important in the rescue than all the rest? Well, the answer is none, because if he hadn't have heard, he wouldn't have looked. But if his eyes had been blind, he wouldn't have been able to find the person. Similarly, if his legs didn't work, he would never have got there. And of course, without arms or hands or back, the rescue would never have been accomplished. So though each person has a different function and gifting within the body of Christ, we're all vital, we're all necessary for God's purposes to be ultimately accomplished. So yes, in Christ's body, there is this unity, but there is also diversity because not everyone is a hand, not everyone is a foot, not everyone is an eye. There's a core unity about doctrine, and yet there's diversity in giftings and in purpose. Paul goes on to quote King David in Psalm 68, verse 18, saying, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. What Paul does here is he draws from what his readers easily understood. And in those days, a king who was victorious in battle would return to his throne after he'd rescued his people. And he would bring the defeated enemy as captives behind him as a demonstration of his absolute power to conquer. Now, in the original psalm, if you were to go and read it, David says that it is the king who receives the gift gifts from men which of course was was the usual custom in those days because people would honour and thank the king for what he had done But Paul here changes the quote to say that our victorious King Jesus, once he had ascended to his throne in heaven, he was the one who gave gifts to men. After all, he is the king and he's able to do whatever he pleases. And this gift giving, really, we should look at it as being his equipping of his generals. Paul goes on to say in verse 9, Now this he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, I know that there are a lot of different ideas about what Paul meant here in this verse, but I think the plain thing is often the main thing. For Christ, the victorious king, to ascend to his throne in heaven, it first meant that he had to descend to earth. He had to come to rescue his own. He laid aside his heavenly glory and he descended into our poor, small world. But even more than that, the king of glory, Did not come to a palace No, he was willing to descend to the lower parts of the earth To sleep in a stable And to even die on a cross As Philippians 2, 6 through 8 says, Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. But we know that Christ rose again. And then he took up his throne. He ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things according to Ephesians 4 verse 10. Or as Philippians 2, 9 through 11 goes on to say, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Jesus returned to his throne in heaven, it wasn't so that he could leave us alone as orphans. When Christ went, it was so that he might fill his people all in all with his spirit. Remember how Jesus said to us in John 16 verse 7, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart... I will send him to you. You see, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and his ascension were necessary for us to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who makes these varied gifts available to us. Verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. You see, God decided which gifts to give to whom. And evidently, although everyone is gifted, not all gifted in the same way. Because you see in verse 11 there, he says that, It is some who are pastors, some who are teachers, and so forth. It's also important to understand that that Greek word for gave in the text of verse 11 is didomi, meaning that what was given was given completely at God's discretion. That Greek word means that there was no idea of merit on the part of the recipient. In other words, nobody deserved to be a pastor. No one deserved to be a teacher more than another. This was all given by God's grace to individuals. Now, you see as well, some and not all are equipped to be apostles. Now that word apostolos there in the Greek means a sent out one for Christ. And that refers to really more than the original 12. Of course, there were 12 apostles, but these people are now the church planters or the people who start a work today. In a sense, we're all sent out on Christ's behalf to bring people to him. But some really have the gift of beginning a work for God in a new area. Some are called to be prophets in the sense that the Holy Spirit speaks through them, not only foretelling events yet to come, but also foretelling God's specific message to his people in certain circumstances. Now, I just want to say that that doesn't mean you always need the help of someone with a prophecy gift to know what God is saying to you, because all of us have the Holy Spirit within us. But what it does mean is that some are more gifted in this area than others. The way the Holy Spirit works through these people is to give a word of instruction, comfort, or encouragement to others, and also at times to rebuke them or to convict them in a way that they know it's really God's message to them. Additionally, there are some that are called to be evangelists, specifically those used by God to share the good news of Christ with others. Now, You know that we are all called to evangelize, but some people are particularly gifted in this area. We're all called to care for one another too, and yet some in the body also have a more pastoral gift. Now, the word pastor here in the Greek is poimen, literally meaning a shepherd. But it's used as a figure of speech, meaning someone who is an overseer of a Christian congregation. The shepherd in that culture had several responsibilities, and these are really a great picture of a pastor as well. A shepherd had to love the sheep and he had to be willing to share his life with them so as to earn their trust. Shepherds were to defend their sheep when they were attacked and also to protect the flock from danger. If a sheep was lost or trapped, the shepherd was the one to go and search for it so that it could be rescued and restored to the group. And they were also the ones who would care for the wounded and the sick sheep. And, you know, I love the fact that when a shepherd tried to work out how well their flock was doing, he would do so by walking among them, running his hand over their fleece. In this way, he could determine how well they were doing doing just by his touch. And of course, the person with the pastoral gift is often the one who walks among the people, connecting with them, checking on them make, to make sure they're doing okay. Now, of course, you know that we are all called to do this, to care for one another, to check in with one another. But some have that special gifting that goes above and beyond what is usual, Not only that, but also God gave some to be teachers. And by the way, that really is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Many may have necessary qualifications from worldly universities and so forth. But remember, this is a person who is going to be specifically gifted by the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to know that this isn't an exhaustive list of the giftings found within the body of Christ, but God has provided these ministry gifts so that they can specifically be used for something. And actually, Paul tells us what that is in verse 12. He says they're to be used for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So we may not all be pastors and teachers or evangelists. But those functions are really those that equip God's people for the work of the ministry, or as some places refer to it as works of service. So all of us have work to do. We all have a service to perform, and we need to be equipped for us. God wants to do that. That Greek word for equipping here in the text, katartismos, And this word was often used when referring to setting a broken bone. The idea associated with it is of putting something into the condition that it really ought to be in for useful work. So you can't work properly when your arm is broken, and the church also needs to be built up and strengthened through the use of the fivefold ministry gifts. And that's also what edifying means. Edifying means to build up the body of Christ, promoting spiritual growth and strength within the group so that they can be effective in their service of him. Verse 13 tells us that this is to be done till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this work of equipping and building up within the church is going to continue until everyone is convinced that Jesus really is the only way by which we must be saved. And until all come to the knowledge of the Son of God. This is to continue until we come to perfection, which really only will be when we stand before Jesus and see him face to face. So it's an ongoing process of equipping. Until that time comes, as we work together, as we should, God is going to equip us and he's going to build us up for effective service in his kingdom so that, according to verse 14, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. God does not want us to stay as infants in the faith. He wants you and I to grow to maturity and strengthen him. He wants us to be founded on his word and to be healed from our brokenness. As long as we're immature, untaught, unskilled in the things of God, there is the possibility of being shaken and being led into error. Without being equipped and built up in the truth, we can end up like those waves on a storm-tossed sea, carried about with every wind of doctrine. You know, not all teaching that comes your way is going to be godly, because some of it comes by, unfortunately, the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. There are those who whose teaching leads people into error and into wrong action, and God does not want that for you and I. Instead, he tells us in verse 15 that we should be speaking the truth in love so that the church may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Now, I want to say this isn't a call to give our own opinions in love. We're to speak the truth in love. So the question is, is what is the truth? Thankfully, Jesus clarified that for us in John 17, 17, when he told us that God's word is truth. So we're to speak God's word in love. But there are three things that are very important here in that very small phrase. Speaking the truth in love. Firstly, we must be willing to speak. Secondly, we have to know God's truth, his word, and be willing to share it. And thirdly, all of this has to be done in love. In other words, with goodwill toward the other person. Now, you know that even when we speak the truth in love, it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy for everyone to accept, or sometimes even for them to understand. It is important to know, though, that we can easily fall into three errors here. Often people either share what they think rather than what the word of God actually says, or they mistakenly believe it might be more loving to say nothing at all. But according to this scripture, we are to speak. Others struggle with the love part of the instruction. They're willing to speak God's word, but they do it in judgment rather than out of a genuine concern for someone else. We're not called to finger pointing or judgmental attitudes. It's God's job to judge. It's our job to love. But the other potential error is to be so focused on the world's perception of what loving is that we try to underplay the truth of God's word so that others are not put off. But Christ never did that. Out of loving concern for people, Jesus always told them what the word of God says. You see, it's all about Jesus. So that, speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. As with a physical body, each part needs to be working effectively. For it is as every joint, ligament and muscle work together that the body is strengthened and built up. Following Jesus is all about growth and transformation. We cannot remain as we once were before we came to know Jesus as our Saviour. And next lesson, we're going to look at what this new man looks like. And believe me, you won't want to miss it. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for everything that you have said to our hearts today. Lord, we are part of your body. We're united and yet we're different. Not all our hands, not all our feet, not all our eyes, but each one of us has a specific function within your body, a work that needs to be carried out. Lord, would you equip us? Would you continue to strengthen us and edify us? Would you build us up to be effective in our service of you, irrespective of what that service is? And in the meantime, help us to function as a unit as we should, Help us to function in unity to the glory of Christ's name. Help us to love one another, for by this the world will know that we are your disciples. It is in Jesus' name and for his glory alone that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.